Podcast for the face of an angel. <laughs> My name is Tom Chick, and to discuss the face of an angel, I have brought along Christian Maronski. Uh, I can't believe you. I just refer to me as the podcasting beast. And with our face of an angel tagline, Kelly Wand. It's like Killer Inside Me, only instead of a guy fucking Jessica Alba and being miserable, it's about a guy fucking Kate Beckinsale and being miserable. That's good, Kelly One. Do you have backup taglines? No. For you don't. Okay, so let's just move straight ahead. Kelly One, do you have an IMDb synopsis for us? Stephen Kovac has been kicked out of his apartment by his girlfriend. Stephen has a new apartment and decides to slip the cable guy, Chip, $50. Oh, uh, 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 cable guy. Yeah. So the, the, the actual title is in the synopsis. That's pretty sneaky. Yeah, I thought that would be uh, camouflage. His name is Steven Kovac? Yeah. And the other guy's name is Chip, in parentheses. Uh, isn't his name... And he's got the same name as like some famous TV figure, right? Isn't that a, a plot point? In- That's Matthew Broderick's name, Steven Kovac. Right, but... Uh, but uh, uh, Jim Carrey's name is something like uh, it's after some famous TV character, right? He keeps changing it. Okay. Like uh, the characters in House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> Captain, what's them call it? Well, I'm guessing on this podcast, I know you and I probably, Kelly Wand, are fond of Cable Guy. I'm guessing Dingus is kind of like a stick in the mud about it and doesn't like it. Dingus I don't, close. I don't understand comedy, so there's no way I'm going to get Cable Guy. Okay, well, guys are very, it's an acquired taste. I can understand that. Here's you know. the sentence I picked this for. When, when Stephen no longer wants to be Chip's friend, the man who can do it all goes on an all-out assault to ruin Stephen's life. In the backdrop is the delicate subplot of the trial of a former kid star for murdering his brother. The delicate subplot. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's one of the things that... The cable guy is known for is the delicacy of its various subplots. You know, <laughs> I have a confession, a confession to make. I um, I binge watched the rest of Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Whoa! Yeah, I binge watched twenty minutes. Does that count as binge watching when you watch a movie? Yeah, when you finish it, it does. It, it is. Right. It does. Yeah. Fair enough. And I have to say, I uh, I, I I love that movie. I don't I don't understand what people's deal is. It's uh. It's like classic 80s cheese. Um, <laughs> there's just so much rich stuff in it. I don't I don't understand how anybody... I don't know. First of all, I don't know why it wasn't a huge hit. Uh, and second of all, I don't know how anybody could go back and watch this this gem of 80s cheese and just not adore it. Um, I have a confession to make that I always mix up the posters of that and Big Trouble in the Little China in my head. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> thing is, there's a difference between 80s cheese and classic 80s cinema. Oh, so Big Trouble is not 80s cheese. No, Big Trouble is, is 80s in all of its glory. I mean, Big Trouble is just splendiferous. There's no issue. You don't like Big splendiferous, Trouble. Splendiferous? That's yeah. the word you're using? You do not like Big Trouble in Little China, ironically. You like Remo Williams' Adventure Begins, ironically. There's no other way really to like it. Big Trouble in Little China is just flat-out great. 
right. from the famous meet-cute scene between Jack Burton and Kim Cattrall all the way through to the finale. It's a flawless movie, I would say. Maybe not a perfect movie, but a flawless movie. All right, so you Remo love Williams. you love Remo ironically, then. Yeah, I have I have a soft spot for it. I mean, yeah, it's got a lot going for it. The, the Joel Grey, the Fred Ward interplay. Um, you know, the poster has them jumping around on the Statue of Liberty. That whole Statue of Liberty set piece, by the way, which I picked for the 3x3 three three about statues just because I knew it was in there. I hadn't seen it yet. Um, having seen it now, when they shot it, the Statue of Liberty was ensconced in um, scaffolding. You couldn't even see it. Um, so it's basically shots of Fred Ward and his various stunt doubles running around on scaffolds. Um, but oh, at some point, they is built that when a, they were like refinishing it. Yeah, exactly. They were painting it or whatever they were doing to it. Um, just it, it happened to be when they were shooting at the you know that's the state of the Statue of Liberty in New York. Um, yeah. But for a couple of scenes, they built a, a I imagine full size replica of, of the top half of the Statue of Liberty in Mexico. So they later did some shots where you can see Fred Ward like climbing on her hand or on her face or something like that. Uh, but for the most part, it's just dudes running around on scaffolding. Um, oh, that is awesome. I didn't realize oh, it was actually so, during yeah. the scaffolding period when they're – because they had to refinish the copper the, – the copper coating of the Statue of Liberty had started to, I don't know, degrade or something, and they had to redo it. Yeah, I didn't know it, it, was du- it was during that that they were shooting it. So basically, this is a this is a historical like it's a, it's a time in history captured on film. It's a, they keep the Statue of Liberty there just to fuck with Charlton Heston Mexican version. I don't understand that, Kelly Lund. I'm assuming they only made the top part like a bust of the Statue of Liberty in Mexico. Oh, oh in Mexico, right, right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know what became of that. It was probably sold to some rich Mexican. I'm assuming. Uh, but here's, that sounds like so, more work than just doing it on the real Statue of Liberty. Um, yeah, that's why they did that. But, but here's the deal. So this is the, the, the crux of that scene on the Statue of Liberty. I was hypothesizing that maybe Kate Mulgrew gets captured and he has to go rescue her from the top of the Statue of Liberty. Um, no such thing happens, by the way. Uh, the latter half of Remo Williams' The Adventure begins when he and Kate Mulgrew do get together and there's all this like cute sexual tension between them. Uh, that just takes place out in the woods. You know, For no reason, they're just out in the woods having an adventure. But the Statue of Liberty part, Joel Gray is like, today we take you to the Statue of Liberty to do exercises. So he, they're, they're taking him to just do balance exercises on the Statue of Liberty. And Joel Gray drops him off at the top and takes an elevator down. Meanwhile... The bad guy has hired some ne'er-do-well construction workers to go up there and knock Remo Williams off. And they, they literally show the bad guy at the foot of the Statue of Liberty, like handing out $20 bills to a couple of construction workers. <laughs> so the construction workers go up there, and they're like, hey, are you going to fall? Are you going to fall? And they're like kicking the scaffolding and making him lose his balance and stuff. Uh, and that's the extent of the fight scene. You know, he has to sort of get away from them, and he runs away, and he slides down ropes and um, – eventually gets away from him. Like, there's no high stakes. It's just some construction workers picking on Remo. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That, yeah, that was annoying to me. And they never, he never has sex with Kate Mulgrew. They just go to the woods for no reason. And then, correct, correct, yeah. Um, but there is... even a love story. Um, no, but you, you can tell they're into each other. Uh, do you take back that she's not hot? I do, I do. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I stick by that. She's not hot. There's a couple of shots where she's really cute, but no, she just really looks matronly. She's not hot. 
yeah, she's not hot. But she, there's a couple of shots where you can see, okay, yeah, she's kind of cute from this angle. Um, but no, she's very uh, – like you could see her on some 80s TV show like Bionic Man on a guest starring spot or something. Uh, she's got that kind of look to her. Uh, there's one cool thing. Um, so the evil bad guy who knows Kate Mulgrew is on to him, he's like, hey, come with me, Kate Mulgrew. I want to show you something. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and then Rima Williams happens to show up at that point, so he tags along with him. So the bad guy's like, come this way. And he leads them through this test chamber. And then he dashes what? out the far door of the test chamber and closes it behind him. And meanwhile, the door that came through gets closed as well. So they're locked in this test chamber. Hmm. And the bad guy starts piping in like nerve gas to kill them. And he's looking through the window going, ha ha, I'm going to kill you. You're dead now. And he sends his, hench- gas. He sends his henchman, whose who's trademark, whose characteristic is he has a diamond in his front tooth. When he smiles, you see the little diamond twin. I don't remember that. So he sends the henchmen. He says, make sure they're dead. So the gas is coming in, and it knocks them out. And they are knocked out on the floor from the gas. And the henchman puts on a gas mask, and he walks in to make sure they're dead. But guess what? They tricked the henchmen. They're fine. Rima Williams gets up and fights the henchman. And he knocks off his gas mask, and he's punching them. But there's still gas in here, and it's going to kill them. So Remo Williams takes the henchman's head, pushes it up against the glass, and uses the diamond on his front tooth to cut a hole in the glass. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Using his face. And that's how they escape from the test chamber. Check off diamond. That's great. Yeah. So, Wait. So, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, what's that guy's name? The henchman? Yeah. Uh, I, it, it probably is something like Diamond Tooth. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember how he was credited. He, he's genuinely creepy, though. Like, he's, he's got this great face where he looks creepy. And then when he smiles, he looks even creepier. He looks super scary when he smiles. That's how I feel. Well, Kelly, when you, you could have been up for that part back in the 80s. Yeah. You know? Wait, that doesn't even use Remo Williams' super martial arts powers, though. He just goes, oh, look, we got the guy with the tooth. So it turns out, by the way, I had no idea. Remo Williams is actually from this hugely successful series of novels called The Destroyer series. Yeah. You knew this. Told- yeah, and the ones to read are like number 38, 39. That? There, there are literally 150 Destroyer novels. I mean, there's a whole series of writers that have worked on these. It's it's an institution. Holy cats, from yeah. when? When did that, what? They're, I think they're even current. I mean, I think they're still going. And, and in these there's two, also those Executioner ones. It's not the same thing, is it? No, that's what I'm saying. I got it mixed up. Right, it's like, that kind or, of thing. So the destroyer is Remo Williams, and Chun, I think that's his name, is his his Asian mentor. And they go on adventures, and they fight like were tigers and cyborgs and various stuff. Um, and this was supposed to be, you know, an, the beginning of film adaptations of some of these novels. I never read any of those. I really like the Matt Helm novels, though. Well, uh, but Kelly Wand, how do you know which one? To, you just said a number of one that should be read how do you know that yeah someone said that to me like oh yeah these are like i explained like i knew what the books are i'd seen them around and then the so it's just a franchise that a bunch of different writers have done yep yeah and then it gets good 38 in when did this start like in the way before remo williams yeah not afterwards the 60s or 70s i think good lord like tarzan books or something uh yeah but a million more right and when I when I looked this up, you know, there's a website for it. Uh, there's a blog entry for the current writer. There's a there's a blog where the current writer is, there's the current writer has these blog entries on the site. And the latest one is him basically bemoaning the success of superhero movies because he's basically pissed that superheroes are really taking off, but nobody's uh 
is, is eager to adapt the Remo Williams series. He's a superhero. <laughs> he just doesn't that- like the they're not called Remo Williams. They're called the Destroyer. Yep, the Destroyer. Why didn't I they read all call the movie the Destroyer? That's an awesome name. Who knows? It, I mean, that makes me that makes me think of a boat. Yeah, I don't. I don't really. Yeah, I boat. wouldn't go see that. I would go see Remo Williams: The Adventure Begins. I wouldn't go see the Destroyer. The Adventure I would see Begins. the. I wouldn't see the battle. The Destroyer, and he's undone by construction workers, which I hear is really good in number thirty-nine. I would go see the construction workers. Yeah. I read uh, all 180 Doc Savage novels, <laughs> and after that, I didn't want to start all over with another guy. That's the guy who was the band leader for Johnny Carson. Yeah, uh, very good. I was getting <sighs> to which one's Doc Savage and which one's... Coach Celtics. Doc Savage is a man of bronze, and it predates Superman, and he has a fortress of solitude. Well, and, and Superman ripped know, it all off. Well, what's, uh, what's the difference between Doc... I never know what the difference between Doc Savage and Doctor Strange is. They're the same guys. Uh, just everything. Yeah. What? Oh my god! So, Strange is yes. You would not see a movie about construction workers, but you would see a movie about what you saw a movie about this week. Yes, I would. This week, I would see a movie called The Face of an Angel. Mm. Now, don't spoil it yet for people. Tell us a little bit about what this is without spoiling it. All right. Well, this is a 2015 British psychological thriller drama crime coverage movie. Ah, I see about how useful it is for writers to read other writers' blogs. It was written by Michael Winterbottom. I'm sorry, directed by Michael Winterbottom and written by Paul Virag, inspired by the book Angel Face Uh by Newsweek Daily Beast writer Barbie Lata Nadio. Real quick, when you say, say the director's name again. That would be Michael Winterbottom. You make it sound naughty. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, so, again, the uh, writer is Barbie Latza Nadio. It stars Kate Beckinsale, Daniel Brühl, and Genevieve Gaunt. The Face of an Angel is rated DR uh, for drug use, language throughout, heart-eating, and hallucinated breasts. Where's DR from? What is that? DR is just dingus rating because there's no real rating for it. So I just oh, made it. it didn't have a theatrical release. So it yeah. didn't get Doctor it. Strange, same character. I, I just, I just made a bunch, a bunch of crap up. Okay. Uh, well, I don't have any. Uh, well, I could make a. Uh, so it made $0 at the box office because it wasn't released at the box office. There you go. Uh, actually, I don't know if that's true. It's a video on demand release. It might have had a theatrical, a limited theatrical release. I don't know. Uh, it is, however, on the review aggregates. So on Rotten Tomato, the percentage of reviews for Face of an Angel that are positive is 38%. On Metacritic, which is the average rating from various reviews, it is at 37. Hmm. Uh, let's go to Kelly Wan now for – maybe you haven't seen it. Kelly Wan is now going to spoil the entirety of Face of an Angel by giving us a plot synopsis that he calls <laughs> – I didn't do one. I did one for uh, Creep. So we don't have Face of an Angel Opsis. So I can't spoil it. Oh, all right. Uh, okay, well, there's that. Okay, so here we go. All right, well then, Kelly Wan, why don't you go first? What did you, uh, what did you think of this movie? I think I figured out why movies about writers suck, and it's because watching someone type is really uncinematic, so the story always winds up being about writer's block. 
which makes us look like lazy prima donnas. But like, that's what this movie's about, I think. I don't know much about the Amanda Knox case. I got it mixed up with the uh, Jean-Benet Ramsey one. Uh, so the moment it started, I didn't know anything about it, uh, except that it was a Michael Winterbottom movie, as, as Dinga says it. Uh, <laughs> well, from, then, um, the moment it started, um, let's see, what were the two data points where I immediately went, oh, no. Uh, the first was that, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, so uh, uh, Daniel Brühl is flying into Italy, and I'm like, okay. And then he is looking up a true crime writer who, who works from Italy. And with those two data points, I was immediately like, Oh no! Tell me this is not about the Amanda Knox crap. Um, and sure enough, as it goes on, yeah, great. It's an Amanda Knox thing. Not what I thought it was going to be, to be fair. Um, but I immediately got the sinking sensation that Michael Winterbottom was what was tasked or decided to, or for whatever reason, was doing something about all this Amanda Knox stuff. And yeah, that was what was happening. Uh, and good lord, the fact that he did what he did with it, I, and I don't know how much of this has to do with the the guy who was his screenwriter, but I mean, who takes this uh, this media circus about the murder of a young American and the the incompetence of the Italian legal system? Who takes this story and makes it about a Hollywood writer's midlife crisis? I mean, I was astonished that that was the angle he took. What on earth was he thinking? How does that happen? I mean, what, good lord, what was going on with this? Uh, so, Dingus, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe Dingus really appreciated it. Dingus, what did you think of uh, of this particular Michael Winterbottom movie? Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll tell you my interpretation of how that happens um, because I think that what Michael Winterbottom is doing is making a movie about the process of not knowing what the fuck movie he's going to make uh, instead of actually bothering to come up with a story he just falls back on that crappy thing that writers sometimes do is that well i'll just make a movie about a writer who doesn't know what movie he's going to make so i think every time that uh daniel Brühl's character says i don't know what angle to take that's actually michael winterbottom saying i'm just revealing that i don't know what the fuck i'm doing but Dingus, um, it works I, I think this is a total uh a cop-out movie that and I'm, I, I really hate this movie, and I think that the reason I hate it is not just because it's boring, because I can deal with a boring procedural if you're going to do that, or I can deal with uh, a slightly tedious movie about Hollywood, because if you're going to do that, or about journalism if you're going to do that. But a movie about uh, I, as an artist, can't figure out what I'm going to do, and now I'm just going to have a character telling you that I don't know what the fuck I'm doing is m- me basically having to tread water while you tread water. So, Dingus, I take it you don't like uh, adaptation. Oh, I love adaptation, but I think that that is an, a brilliant way of doing that because it turns it into art. This this is just a way of just saying, I didn't know what to do, so here, you people deal with it. I don't even think you have to say turns it into art. I mean, I just think there's so much self-awareness with what Spike Jones was doing with uh, – or Charlie Kaufman was doing with adaptation uh, that's completely missing here. Uh, all this meta stuff just does seem, like you're saying, Dingus, like, well – I don't know what to do, so I'm going to wallow in this kind of meta angle, and maybe something will come of it. I mean, there's so much self-awareness and adaptation. That's part of what's brilliant about it. It's right. entirely missing here. Uh, the character, for instance, so completely unsympathetic. I mean, what a dick yeah, this mm-hmm. guy is. Right. Uh, the, the fact that he's coked up, first of all. I mean, that's like, what What are we telling us about? What You know, what is this telling us about the character? Okay. You know, that he's avoiding 
living in the same city as his daughter because he resents his wife, um, that he's a dick to Kate Beckinsale, that he's so confused about something that's supposedly his job, you know, how to adapt a story into a script yeah. and make a movie. Um, I mean, it, this made me actually not like Daniel Bruhl, who I normally like as an actor. Right, right. Uh, and right. That, that really takes some doing. It made me not like Michael Winterbottom, which takes some uh, Winterbottom. Sorry, which takes some doing too. Um, I, I got. I, I don't like him now, and I, I I have heretofore loved him as a filmmaker, but here I just felt like he was foisting upon us his inability to make us to make a story. I, I think if there's one thing you can say about Michael Winterbottom is that he's prolific, and that works against him sometimes as much as it works for him. Um, so I, I think the best thing we can do to salvage this discussion is talk about like various Michael Winterbottom movies because right, there yeah. are others that are equally tedious. Has either of you guys seen Nine Songs? <laughs> oh, no, but you've talked about that before. But there is another Michael Winterbottom movie that I want to talk about that I think is along these same lines that I think is very exciting to me. But I, want to, I, I forgot what you said about Nine Songs. Well, well, Nine Songs is another one where it seems like he doesn't know how to give this story shape. Um and it ends up just being tedious. It's mainly known as a movie where the two leads uh, actually have sex with each other. Um, oh, yeah. And and that is that is a fact about it. But more more pertinent is that it. <laughs> I, I love the way you said that. That is a fact about it. Sounds like Perd health. Yeah, well, yeah. If you do want to see uh, if they do have sex, as Perd might say, yeah. I mean, that's definitely what's going on in the movie. But I don't think that's notable. What's notable about Nine Songs is just how how unlikable the leads are, how shapeless the story is. Um, how there's a concept but no shape to it. And it's called Nine Songs because, quite literally, they have sex, they go to a concert. They have sex, they go to a concert. Each sequence where they go to a concert, we're treated to a song by an, uh, an artist like Dandy Warhols or uh, Franz, uh, Franz Ferdinand or, or whatever. Uh, it's literally footage of a song at a concert, and then they have sex. Footage of a song at a concert. They have sex. Footage of a song at a concert. So there are nine songs. That's why the movie is called Nine, nine Songs. Sex. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so Dingus, you were you were saying there's an, the structure of Face of an Angel reminded you of another Michael Winterbottom movie, but but the other one you have positive opinion of. Right, and that would be Mighty Heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because it, it mainly because of the simple fact that it's related to something that that's real that happened, but. I really love a Mighty Heart because I think that it treats the subject in I don't know how you would put it uh, a respectable way and also dramatic uh, without being uh, ponderous or tedious or pandering um, and and I don't know that any of those things relate this movie this movie is just I think trash but I really loved a Mighty Heart and tell us about what is Mighty Heart about well Mighty Heart is about uh, the it, it, you know it's it's so weird to talk about this right now in light of the way that the way that things have gone with um, with the way I, ISIS deals with uh, the way ISIS has uh, shown the execution of so many people mm-hmm. um, and but this was the first time that. Uh, that we actually saw this happen or that I remember in, in, in my understanding of how things were going in the war on terror when Daniel Pearl was uh, executed by um, Al Qaeda. Uh, I think it was Al Qaeda. I apologize if that's wrong. Um, but it was also about 
his wife, I think, embarking upon this um, God, I apologize for sort of halting here, but embarking upon this this journey to figure out what happened to Daniel Pearl. Right. And um, and I I really just remember that movie having such a, a strong dramatic core, but not exploiting what was actually going on. But actually, Michael Winterbottom understanding that if he focused on her and focused on what she needed to find out, that that was the important part of that movie. And I really loved Mighty Heart. Yeah, so he was a journalist in Pakistan, and I think it was the oh, Taliban. Thank you, thank you. And the Taliban yeah. kidnapped him and held the him. The Taliban, him. thank you. And his beheading was broadcast and stuff. Uh, and, and it's also uh, an example, I think, of of a topic that Winterbottom obviously cares about, the, the post-9-11 war on terror stuff, because he also did a dramatization of um, these three British citizens who were sent to Guantanamo uh, in a movie called Road to Guantanamo. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he, he has... Uh, he obviously has subjects that are near and dear to him, and he makes movies about these subjects. And, and one of the subjects, by the way, I think, I'm guessing, is Italy, because he shot many things in Italy. He did a, a TV series with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon called The Trip. The first season was in London. The second season was in Italy. He did a, a sort of a slow Colin Firth as a, a widower with two daughters living in Genoa, a movie called Summer in Genoa, which was very much about Italy as a, as a setting. So I, I think he has, you know, he he probably just likes being in Italy, I guess, and that might be be part of what happened with with this movie here. The way Kellen Lutz likes water. Yeah. You know, I I I keep forgetting the fact that the trip and and trip to Italy were TV series because I watched uh, those again this week, or at least parts of them again this week, in in preparation for doing this, and Netflix just shows them as movies. Right. I don't think Netflix that because they were they were for uh, I think they were broadcast on British TV, but then they were released in the states as a in, condensed into a ninety minute movie. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. Uh, something else that uh, I, I think Michael Winterbottom likes quite a bit uh, is Thomas Hardy. Kelly Wan, do you know uh, his Thomas Hardy? I guess is it a trilogy? Let me see. So there's uh, there's Jude the Obscure, Tess de Urbavilles, and Mayor of Casterbridge. He's adapted all of these under different names um, as movies. Kelly, one, do you know these source materials? And Tom Hardy stars in all of them? <laughs> that would be something. Tom Hardy doing Thomas Hardy. Um, <laughs> so the, the first one is, is called Jude, and it's it's uh, uh, Christopher Eccleston, um, and it's I think it's one of Michael Winterbottom's first movies. Uh, and it's a very straightforward adaptation of Jude the Obscure. I, I remember really liking it. Uh, his test of the Durbovilles, or test Durbovilles, whatever, I can't say that, uh, is uh, it's set in India, um, and it's called Trishna. Uh, and then finally, one of my favorite Michael Winterbottom movies is based on an obscure Thomas Hardy uh, novella called The Mayor of Casterbridge. Uh, and it's a movie that um, Michael Winterbottom recat, reset as a Western called The Claim. Um, oh yeah, yeah. With, with Wes Bentley, with a really good Mila Jovovich performance, with a fantastic act, actor named Peter uh, Mullen, um, and I think next to Killer Inside Me, you know, it's one of the reasons that if Michael Winterbottom wants to every now and then sort of do some crappy face of an angel thing, that's fine. We'll always have the claim and, and Killer Inside Me. Um, Doesn't the claim have the same plot as Indecent Proposal, where it's two gold miners, though? Um. I guess you, you, you could look at it that way, but not quite. So Indecent Proposal is so. is basically just, hey, can I have sex with your wife for a million dollars? 
the claim is more about this this guy who despairingly sells off his his wife and daughter. Um, <laughs> it's the same thing. Uh, the stakes are a little different, but yeah, I guess the the principle is similar. Kelly Wand, you you can see those. Yeah. And the title, um, the claim and indecent proposal are, are the same. Yeah. I guess one an in, uh, an in, they're an both in, paperwork. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, it does it does refer to the exchange being made. Yeah. You know what though about Face of an Angel, I think like I wasn't hating its rhythms, so I don't know if that means I'd like Michael Winterbottom direction and i just hated where the story was going and i hated the characters and i really hated the ending um like just as a piece of fiction like let alone something that's supposed to be based on something topical set in italy well yeah i mean it is it is funny how it 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 raises early on and dingus you, you mentioned this um the problems with doing adapting this material and by the way uh the woman who wrote the book, uh, an, an angel's face or whatever the, the stupid book was, uh, there was a notoriously uh, lurid account of Amanda Knox's like sex life and uh, Meredith Kircher's sex life, uh, and it was clearly like it was clearly cashing in on the bullshit that the Italian authorities were, were floating to try to convict this woman and her boyfriend. Um, I mean, nobody really knows what happened, but probably what happened with Meredith Kircher's death is that she was killed by a young black man that she had, had met who had a, a troubled criminal history. Um, he, he was a drug dealer. Uh, he, he was clearly into Meredith Kircher. Um, and when she was alone, most likely what happened is he, he raped and murdered her. Um, however, the ensuing uh, investigation and the prosecution was so horribly botched that Yes, he was caught and tried, but the Italian authorities got so caught up in this media sensation of prosecuting this this American girl and her Italian boyfriend uh, that they just kept running ahead with it. Um, and it took a trial and then a retrial. Um, you know, she was incarcerated for I think something like four years. She was eventually released and she came back to America. And while she was back in America, the trial went on. Eventually, she was acquitted. Um, but this woman who wrote a book that this movie is based on was was part of this early media frenzy. And her book is just a bunch of bullshit about Amanda Knox being uh, a, a kind of a sexual predator and, and Meredith Kircher being, you know, a woman of loose morals who maybe deserved this. Um, just really offensive crap. Um, so I, I think uh. early on, uh, I, I was I was wondering if maybe the movie was going to dip into that, and and because Kate Beckinsale I think is portraying the, this woman and uh, that boyfriend of hers. Well, they he's also this guy. The the uh, the the actual the guy who and again I'm stressing I don't know what happened, but if you try to read between the lines and make assumptions, the the man who murdered her fled to Germany. There are a couple of brief scenes in this movie where they imply. That the guy who just happened to be in Germany, and he was really some sensitive, caring, close friend. I mean, I think this movie is all based on early assumptions that were made in the media frenzy. Um, you know, that this movie's representation based on what we know now is really kind of crass and off-kilter. Right. Um, uh, so I, I was kind of wondering, was the movie going to toy with that? Because early on... It says, and, and I, I, I sort of ding the movie for having a lack of self-awareness, but it does say things early on like, make it a fiction. Uh, you know, there's too many angles. What are we going to do with it? Um, right. 
So I was thinking, hey, maybe this will lead to some kind of self-awareness and there will be some sort of statement um, you know, about oh. not being able to know. But instead, it just becomes a bunch of crap about this guy's midlife crisis and his hallucinations um, and, and some lecturing about obsession with, with killing and murders. Um, it's like the Mothman prophecies. It's not at all like the Mothman prophecies, prophecies because Mark Pellingham actually made a, a creepy, compelling movie. That's uh, true. You know, I like That's Mothman prophecies, and Richard Gere is kind of a, a fun detective in that. This this is about some douchebag, out of his element Hollywood screenwriter. Yeah, but in Mothman prophecies, it kind of it's like the Laura Linney characters, like, hey, quit quit worrying about ghosts and shit. We got to get on with their lives, even though like he is actually talking to the dead and stuff. So it's kind of like it's more about his crisis than the fact that there's actually like the supernatural thing going on with bridges collapsing and stuff. And this is about like if it's based on that um, sensationalist novel you're saying, it seems weird because his character in the movie is all about I'm not about that. Like I have integrity. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's such a strange source material for that to, and then to wind up not going anywhere yeah uh, right. Ke- kelly one did you love it when there were cg lizard people attacking uh kind of i did <laughs> i didn't see that coming and it was like tree of life a little like i, I was yeah yeah exactly like hey there's dinosaurs in this i wonder if, you know is this is it going to run along this angle for a while is yeah, it become a horror movie bad. Look, she's eating a heart. Yay. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, and the hey. character, the guy kept going, have you read my blog? Oh, uh, like, and he, but he kept okay. dreaming about him. Like, what's his deal? Like, right. they, you know, why they would go he... into this whole, this whole thing of like, uh, we're going to bring up lurid details about her sexual past, but then we're just going to judge ourselves for bringing it up, uh, which is this whole, like, Daniel Brule's character gets to sit there and judge all the journalists for bringing up all the stuff about her diaries, which I thought is where right. you were going when you were talking about that sexual stuff. It's like, oh, well, she did this and she did that. And and he judges them and, he, and then he runs off. But they still get to just blurt it out there for all of us to hear. So she's a sexual person and blah, 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 right. which which has nothing to do with the case. In the, in the, I mean – I, I I don't know what Michael Winterbottom thinks he is making here because he's what does he think he's doing? I mean, I honestly don't know what he actually thinks he's doing in bringing up that sexual crap and then just judging it. I mean, I honestly don't know what he thinks he's doing. Here's what I wonder, Dingus: like, how much of so somewhere along the lines, he he gets the rights to this woman, Nada, which what is, is this woman's book, uh, right. fa- Angel Face, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, it's called Angel Face, and it and she did work for Newsweek and the Daily Beast, so that is absolutely absolutely what like Kate Kate Beckinsale spews out at the beginning. Right. So he, he so Michael Winterbottom and his screenwriter they get the rights for this. The screenwriter just does a straight up adaptation of it, maybe. And Michael Winterbottom is like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, right. like who screwed this up? Who put all the meta in this? Who lost his way? Was Michael Winterbottom just given a crappy script? And he he works so prolifically, and he so he probably has a tight schedule. That he shot what he could. Um, did he tell the screenwriter to do something like that? Was he given the script in that straight? I mean, who knows? Um, but I can't help but it think, a, too. Did, like, passion project. Was it a huge way? Passion project. Yeah, yeah, oh, right, yeah, exactly. Or as a guy who likes shooting in Italy, did he really care about the media frenzy about Amanda Knox? I mean, who knows? Who knows well, how can you possibly happened? feel passionate about this particular story? I, I know. I mean, either it's a story about journalism, or a story about this true crime thing, or a story about making movies. Make a fucking choice. Well, what's kind of weird, Dingus, is I could maybe understand if he 
had this sense of empathy for uh, for for the victim, Meredith Kircher, I think. Am I screwing up her name? I think her name was Meredith Kircher. Like, did he really have empathy for the fact that she was forgotten and all this? Oh, and all right. The title, you know, the title card at the end of the movie says for Meredith Kircher and it has her birth and death years. Um, did he think he was somehow honoring her? Right, uh, the, the movie about her instead of making it about himself, which is and, what he made it about. And not only that thing, it's a self-indulgent like, movie. And not only that thing, it's but changing the names. You know, he right. doesn't use anybody's real name in this. Uh, you know, is he honoring this dead woman by substituting for her some fictional name and then spinning out this crazy meta story about it? And having the writer have visions of her looking at the camera and looking angelic. Um, Jesus. Yeah. And what on earth was going on with the the model with the eyebrows? Uh <laughs> I don't know how to say her name, but she's a kind of a flavor of the month chick. Um, holy, what? Like, what were we supposed to think about their relationship and their friends? Who, who are you talking about? I'm not sure who you're talking uh, about. Her name is like Kara. I should look it up. The, she, so she's, a, she's a famous model. She's in Joe Wright's new movie. Oh, the yeah. Melanie girl. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the waitress who's always running around. I'm gonna and get like, some blow. Right, I'm gonna do this, and now I'm gonna go in the next room while you guys have a scene. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What was supposed? What was, and then, and then they sort of repair to the countryside and have a little retreat together that we're supposed to think is non-sexual. Right. Um, what were we supposed to make of all of that silliness? I think she's supposed to be some sort of a plug-in for his daughter. And we're ew, supposed- gross. Really? Ew. Well, they never hey, they never affect the relationship. He feels guilty about not being with his daughter. He kind of looks after her. She helps him. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, I have no idea what the fuck going because she all her scenes are like i'm going to lead you into this room she's like a pa and then i'm going to go over here <laughs> yeah that's awesome uh, so her name is cara de la Vigne, uh and she's a she's a british fashion model from you know from money in in london uh she's been i, I think she's kind of an up-and-coming actress who I, she's naturalistic really? that's fine but she doesn't do anything for me and i don't understand this um like She's really bl- – I, I don't understand the disparity between her eyebrows and her hair, and it, it's hugely distracting <laughs> yeah, to me. I agree. I never understand any of the hair in this because somebody brings up like a blonde hair at one point. And I'm like, I haven't seen any blondes yet. And then he's doing this, I'm going to go over to the bar and do some documentary footage. And then he catches this nondescript wait- waitress, and he's right. like, let's – is it okay if we shoot you? And right. now we're going to have a relationship for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I she thought she was going to be imaginary. Like oh, now, see, I would have liked yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Actually, Kelly, there were a couple moments where I totally – I mean, that's totally where I was going with this because of that weird heart-eating scene and the other yeah. like things that he was going through. I'm like, is she an imaginary character? I, I think I was really reaching for something that this movie would be going for that would be interesting. So given that, Dingus, what you just said, I want to give you guys my over because – uh, I didn't really like this movie, but it's it's certainly better than Face of an Angel. It's Michael Winterbottom's other another Italian movie, and it's called I mentioned it before, A Summer in Genoa. And uh, so Colin Firth has two daughters, and his wife was killed in a car wreck. And in in the ensuing grief, he decides they're just going to relocate to Italy because to Genoa uh, because he has I think been there on vacation with his wife in the past. So he and his daughters move to Genoa, and it's about him adjusting to the move. It's about them dealing with their grief, and the wife, her ghost, is kind of a character in the movie. Um, and we know she's a ghost. I mean, we know she's imaginary. Uh, so as far as a movie about, I guess you would call it the the, the haunting power of Italy, you know, because I think that's, <laughs> that's part of what – I think the classic example of that is Don't Look Now. Um, 
but I think that's part of what he's trying to do with Face of an Angel is Daniel Bruhl goes to Italy and he is haunted by you know the power of Italy. So I think Summer in Genoa is a similar thing. I don't think it's very good, but Colin Firth really knows how to carry a movie. So my over is the not very good Summer in Genoa, and it does a much better job of ha- having this imaginary character. Um, all right, someone else give me an over. What's something right. that is better than Face of an Angel? My over, and uh, this uh, isn't so closely bracketed because I liked this movie a lot more, but uh, for the over, I was going for a, a uh, something similar along the lines of a true story, and that would be the movie True Story, yep. um, which I liked a great deal. Um, but I just think it understands so much better how to make a story about a journalist who is actually trying to write something but doesn't quite know how to write it yet and doesn't know what the angle is going to be and gets swept up in the story that he's writing. And this true story understands how to do that. This movie does not understand how to do that. So, Kelly Wan, what did you do with your over-under? And give us your over. My over is Antonioni's blow-up. Because it's also where you don't find out who the killer is, but it's only on one theme. And okay. then my my unders blow Wait, out. You didn't? Oh, okay. So basically, uh, also that's an <laughs> Italian movie. Uh, you know, movies that, that began in Italy and then their remakes were not in Italy. So you, blo- you bloviated. Yeah, that's not a remake though. Blowout is a remake. Is a remake of Blow Up. It's it's clearly Brian De Palma having stuff up and doing. That's yeah. clearly yeah. yeah. It's about Chappaquiddick, and you know who the killers are, so it's way different. It is very much a post-Chappaquiddick movie, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then, my under, if we look at uh, this, is a over under about the haunting power of Italy. Um, <laughs> there's uh, there's there's a, a couple of young filmmakers named uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, and you don't know their names probably, but I, I think you will at some point. Uh, Their first movie was a really clever uh, horror movie about meta-horror, I guess. Um, So uh, the – oh, shoot. uh, What's what's the Cash director's – oh, Michael Haneke did a movie called Cash where the – one of the – one of the – maybe the – the, the protagonist in – I'm sorry, the antagonist in Cash is actually a concept, which I love. Um, but a similar movie to Cash is something called Resolution. Um, it's a no-budget movie from uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. I heartily recommend it. See Resolution. However, their second movie uh, is called Spring. Uh, Spring – is about Lou Taylor Pucci, who's an actor that I think we like on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, we do. Yeah, we do. And Lou Taylor Pucci goes to Italy. And while he's in Italy, he meets this chick who's supposed to be super hot and super sexy and super mysterious. And he falls in love with her and has a relationship with her and is, like, haunted by her. But it turns out, and I don't think this is a spoiler because this is how the movie is built, she's some kind of, like – um like like werewolf shapeshifter kind of demon weird thing. Um, so spring is basically before sunrise meets altered states. Uh, and, oh wow! Yeah, and un- unfortunately, I think it's terrible because you know, bless his heart, Lou Taylor Pucci. He tries, but he has no chemistry with this woman. Uh, <laughs> there's there's no sense of the the, the weird mystery that's in, that Ken Russell brings to altered states. Uh, and these these guys, these little independent filmmakers, are so bowled over by, hey, we're in Italy, that 
if you were to play a drinking game where every where you have to take a shot every time they do some gratuitous drone shot of an Italian countryside or a villa, you would be smashed b- before you got to the second reel. <laughs> These guys go to Italy, they bring a drone with them, and and they just love flying this drone around and showing us shots of this villa where they stayed. Um, and yeah, and I think spring is terrible, unfortunately. Uh, and, and and even worse than Face of an Angel, as far as movies about the haunting power of Italy. All right, Dingus, cool. so what is your under? My under uh, uh, goes with uh, writers who don't know what the hell they're going to do with their lives uh, and how they're going to do something, and so that would be, my under would be The Hours. Uh, oh, God, Dingus, <laughs> ouch. Which I absolutely hated, um, and I know you're supposed to like that movie because it was nominated for blah, 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 blah. And uh, plus, plus, uh, plus Nicole Kidman had a weird no- makeup nose that made her look yeah. up, right? So it was her fox catcher. Yeah, that's courage. It was her monster. Yeah. Right. So anyway, I would put the hours underneath um, Face of an Angel. God, wow, the hours. Nose uh, underneath. And then Kelly Wand, yours was uh, Blow Out as the under. Uh, Cara Delvigne. Yes. Even her drapes don't match the drapes. One, two, three, not only you and me, got one eighty degree So on this podcast, we normally only talk about movies. We don't talk about documentaries, but... Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't use this to, to bracket Face of an Angel, but uh, f- one of the most profound um, experiences I've had in of uh, one of the most profound experiences I've had in terms of what Face of an Angel was trying to uh, to convey about the frustration of not being able to know who committed a crime. Um, there's a series of documentaries from a guy named Joe Berlinger uh, about. Uh, what came to be known as the West Memphis Three. And these were three teenagers in West Memphis, Arkansas, who were tried and convicted of the murder of these three of these three little kids, who I think were like eight years old or something. Um, it, was a, it was a horrific crime. Um, and Joe Berlinger's documentaries, there, there have been three of them. And oddly enough, they're called Paradise Lost, Paradise Found. I mean, they're named after De- Dante's Divine Comedies. Oh, very good. Uh, they're profoundly frustrating in terms of, you know, they, they, they kind of ultimately make a stance about the West Memphis Three being innocent. And I'm not convinced. I mean, I, the, the, the evidence that comes out of this is just so muddled, and there's no real clear picture of what happened. Uh, but watching those documentaries is profoundly frustrating in the sense that you realize a lot of crimes, we don't know what happened. The authorities can't piece together the events. And a lot of times, like, evidence is just incomplete, and somebody is tried or convicted because this is the best we've got, or this is the best case the prosecution could make, or the defense couldn't, uh, the defense couldn't mount a case. Um, you know, to me, the OJ situation was ridiculous, um, and it's just a, a bunch of Hollywood blather, and it's terrible that, that the, the two people were murdered. Um, but the, the West Memphis Three situation with those, two, with those three little boys, the three teenagers um, – it's just so frustrating that given all this information, given all this coverage, it's still a huge question mark. Um, and the West Memphis Three have been freed, but nobody now is currently uh, being punished, being incarcerated for the murder of these little boys. Right. So that said, let's do a three by three. 
Uh, Kelly Wan, what do you got for us this week? Three best masks in movies. Not a lot to pick from there. It's a very specific thing. We're not going to have many movies to talk about, are we? No. Uh, what what possessed you to come up with this one, Kelly Wan? Because I, I quite like this. Um, I just got lucky. I was going to say something dumb, and then this came out instead. All right. Uh, oh, you know what? By the way, we didn't do the bookkeeping. Who is introducing next week's topic? That would be you. Oh, great. All right. Well, I'm going first, then. My number three favorite mask. Uh, so this week, uh, we were going to, to change up. So when I started watching Face of an Angel, and I realized, oh, God, this is the Amanda Knox crap. Um I tried desperately to call an audible and have us see a different movie instead, but because of various, various communication issues, we couldn't time it right. I was hoping I could put out a tweet saying, hey, if you, if you uh, like the podcast, we're changing our mind. Um, and by the way, if you follow me at, at QT3, uh, we'll try to keep you appraised if there's ever a change in venue, forever changing the movie we're covering. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't arrange it in time, so we saw Face of an Angel, but... One of the things I was excited about was uh, a Mark Duplass movie called Creep was just released on video on demand, and we've all seen it. So in order to talk about Creep, uh, I am picking for my number three, uh, The Mask of a Wolf Called Peach Fuzz from the movie Creep. Now, maybe you haven't seen Creep. Um, you'll find out in a minute whether or not we liked it. But Kelly Wand, could you maybe go ahead and spoil Creep for the listeners by, oh, giving them maybe a, uh, a synopsis of the events of the movie? Perhaps a uh, creepsis? Oh, you mean a cropsis? A cropsis, yes. So if you haven't seen it, I would like Kelly Wan to spoil the events for you. If you plan to see it, maybe fast forward about 15 minutes. So Kelly Wand, why don't you give us your cropsis? Here I am driving on the freeway. Seems like a good place to turn my video camera on here and start making my personal found footage movie. Uh, so on my way to a remote cabin, uh, answered an ad to film someone for eight hours for three dollars. Pretty excited. It's my first job in eight years. Sure hope it's a swimsuit model who wants to film me having sex with her. And not like my last gig where it was an old man who wanted me to watch him take a bath and eat pancakes. That was not an ideal gig. Pardon my French. But yeah, I forget what my name is, by the way, so it's probably John. Okay, I'm at the porch. Mailbox says Duplass. Nobody's answering. Uh, there's a bloody axe here and a bunch of destroyed video cameras. Weird. Guess I'll just sit quietly in my car here and keep filming myself. Feeling confused. Voice trailing off like I could do every morning. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> For a second, I thought you were Bryce Dallas Howard creeping up on me. Nah, come on out. Hey, my name's Mark Duplass. Come on, hug me. It's not weird. App naturally. Here, come on inside and film me on the staircase. Listen, you ever see the Michael Keaton movie Beetlejuice? Actually, it's not the one I probably want to invoke yet. Or Ex Machina. Anyway, he made another one called The General, which Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan made a very successful parody of called Joe vs. the Volcano. There's also this movie called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang that was written by Ian Fleming, the guy who invented James Bond. That's why Dick Van Dyke's love interest in it as a Bond girl's name and his car can go underwater. Anyway, back to volcanoes. My wife, she's not here for some reason. I just found out I'm dying from a brain cloud, and I have a baseball the size of a brain tumor. So do you mind filming me talking to my imaginary son, Scotty, for eight hours? Uh, okay. Great. Let's get in the tub. Come on. Wait. To tub? 
Oh, isn't this great? Pass me the bubble bath. You're filming, right? Yeah, my dad and me used to take tubbies all the time. He died at 34, so when he turned 42, we switched to a sauna. Fuck, I dropped my ducky. Can you fish him out for me? Oh, yeah, that's it. That's not it. I miss you, Papa. Man, this is sad. Hey, you know what? Maybe to cheer us up, I should just drown myself right now. Goodbye, dry world. Uh, Mark? You okay? Should I call a plump? Ah! Oh, man. That was awesome. You should have seen the look on your face when I came up sputtering and sprayed it all over with crazy foam. Ah, you still got soap in your lungs? Why don't you go down and look through my bedroom closet for some snacks? Okay, seems a bit unorthodox, but I'll just pull this curtain back violently while I go in for a close... Ah! Oh, man, the look on your face again. Here, let me film you so you can see your face. Wait. Sorry, that's not how cameras work. Here, take this back. Look, this is nothing to be afraid of. It's just a wolf's head. I call him Peach Fuzz because he's a wolf. My dad used to wear this outside my window and sing a song every day while I was trying to masturbate. He'd put it on like this and go, What lurks in a closet and loves jump scares? Peach Fuzz, Jawbone, P-E-A-C-H-F-W, backwards asterisk. He loves you. We love him, cock. Yeah, my dad was a professional musician back before the war. One of the Beatles. Hey, come on, let's go to a cliff in the woods, but you have to be pure in heart. Are you pure in heart, Billy? Uh, Scott. Awesome, let's go. You drive since you're wearing the wolf mask. Later. Isn't this great? The hot spring should be right up here, just a couple miles more. Yeah, Mark, the sign says sewer, no admittance, call urologist if inhaled or contact made with skin. Are you sure this place is free? It just sounds way too cool to be. Mark? Oh, great. <laughs> There you go. Gee, I wonder if there's going to be another jump scare. All right, going to close-up. Mark, Mark, where are you, Mark? This isn't funny, Mark. Guess there's nothing behind the stump. Huh. There wasn't anything. That's weird. I wonder where he went. Dude, you should have seen the look on this mask face. Come on, I think here's some flies just a couple hundred yards up. Then we can go grab some pancakes in this place my dad and I used to eat. It's called Denny's. I think it's family-owned, like the athletes and Foxcatcher. Later, Billy's the camera on sweet. Now let's see what's good here. I thought you said you ate your dad here, and how come the waitress said, does your new murder victim want fries with that? Hell, hell, shy. I'm not a waitress anymore. Here she comes. Don't say anything. You guys decided yet? Yeah, I'll have the burger with the gluten-free parsley and also whatever Meg Ryan's having. Billy, is there anything you've ever done before that you're ashamed of besides today? Uh, the waitress is standing right here. <laughs> here, give me the camera. Let me film you for a change. My onboard son will get a kick out of this. Waitress, could you help my friend here put this wolf mask on? Excellent, thank you. Now, Billy, while you have peach fuzz on, tell us all something you did that was hilariously embarrassing. Uh, okay, uh, hi, Mark Jr., uh, let's see. So when I was in kindergarten, I used to pee my pants constantly. So my mom bought a robot for my underwear. And on Christmas morning, I went to school and got up on the monkey bars and just started peeing uncontrollably all over the robot and the monkey bars and other kids. A uh, bunch of kids dreamt. <laughs> I mean, oh, that's harsh. Here, give me peach fuzz back. I think it's my turn to go now. Wait, I didn't get up to the embarrassing part. 
So then I started pooing my pants constantly. Yeah, guys, I have a lot of tables. Right, thank you, Waitress. Could I just get a refill on this napkin and also this salt shaker to go? Thank you. Now, Billy, let me have the camera. No, leave the mask on. I came inside it this morning. I don't want it touching my hair yet. Now, there's something I have to confess. Here, look. Uh, you took pictures of me getting out of my car earlier and knocking on your door and sleeping last night and peeing my pants when I was a kid. Yes, I'm sorry, Billy. When I get nervous, I take pictures of you. Are you okay with this? Uh, sure, I guess. Just seems weird that she'd want your unborn son to care. Ah! Oh, shit. Sorry about it. I shouldn't have thrown the water, too. I got carried away. Sorry. Here, I'll wipe it off your pants with the wolf mask. Oh, you want to take it off your head first? Your prerogative. Come on. Let's drive in circles back towards the cabin until night falls. It'll be fun. Waitress, check, please. Ah! Later. Hey, man, you want to come up for a quick nightcap? I really think my unborn son would find that compelling. Yeah, actually, uh, I think I'm just going to call it. Um... There's a new Winterbottom movie on Amazon Prime. So, you know. We should do this again sometime, though. Like, after your disease runs its course. Hey, that's cool. Just thought it'd be better to commemorate our day together. It's been such an epic journey. I made a new best friend. I think is the nicest, coolest, most interesting person I've ever met. Someone I seriously see as a potential bud. And then I met you, and we kind of headed off. Plus, it's night. You don't want to drive down this hill at night, trust me. I can't tell how many people I've run off the road. Come on, one drink to celebrate the perfect day. Later. Hey, Billy, turn the camera off for a second. I want to get kind of grave. There's something I want to confess that I think my unborn would find kind of extraneous. Okay, uh, it's off. You sure the light's still on? Yeah, if you put the lens cap on, it turns off. Okay. So something I said before was only a third true. My wife's my sister, and Peach Fuzz was our pet dog. We're getting divorced because I found animal pornography on my computer. Okay, turn the camera back on. Uh, okay, click. It's on now. You okay with what I just told you about my wife's bestiality issues, Billy? Uh, should I turn the camera back off? Do you have any money problems, Billy? Go ahead, say yes. There's no shame in bestiality. Uh... That's what I thought. There's a check in your shoe. Go ahead and take a look. Really? Well, that's weird. Since I've had them on all... Ah! Oh, you didn't even jump that time. You suck. Yeah, look, I'm going to bail. After all, this whiskey was awesome, though. Whiskey? That's tap water. You drank from that? Oh, fuck, dude. Hey, you see my car keys? I think I see the shape of them there in your pants pocket. Nah, look, it's way too dark to go through my pockets. Tell you what, you spend the night, we'll get up together at the crack of the dawn... Get back in the tub with some real wolves. Go from there. What do you say? One more drink. Yeah, hey, what's that behind you? Huh? Uh, you should turn around. It's still behind you. It's pretty scary. I'm cool. Turn around. I'm telling you. Billy, I can see in the mirror nothing's behind me. Pretty sure this is something visible to mirrors. Just check it out. Describe it then before I turn around. It's uh, an elephant shaped like a... Buick, and it's fucking a small restaurant in a hurricane. Okay, I'm turning. Where is it? Ah, oh, it just left. Here, drink this. Right. Wait a second. You didn't drug me, Billy, while my back was turned, because that's not what friends do, you know. Drug you? Come on, I don't even live here. Where would I even... The bottle of sleeping pills right there on the counter, Billy. It was unopened two seconds ago, and now there's fizzy white bubbles in my... Ah! Just kidding, Billy. I didn't notice the bubbles. Here, bottoms up. Okay, it's later. I just reached into his pocket, turned on this camera, and I found the cell phone. Fuck. Uh, hello? 
Hey, is this Mark? Did you kill that cameraman yet? Hello? Could you? Click. Ah! Oh, she sounded cute. Oh, hey, Mark, you're up. And uh, wearing the wolf mask. Listen, I talked to your sister. I understand everything now. Uh, can I go? No? Uh, you're doing a seductive dance now with peach fuzz on. Are you gonna kill me? Mm, that's not the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> Later. Uh, so Mark Duplass sent me this video of my body and a bunch of trash bags and him digging my grave, which I'm pretty sure is fake. I'm not sure what he's trying to say, but then this morning I get this heart-shaped locket from him with our pictures in it inside a stuffed animal wolf. So I think he's trying to apologize for the grave digging video. But then last night he broke into my apartment and filmed me cutting a lock of my own hair off, which I guess is an apology for the locket. But then he sent me this video of him apologizing for the hair and saying he wants me to come sit on the bench somewhere. So I called the police. I started telling them all this. They interrupted me with a jump scare and hung up. So since I don't know anyone else, Mark looks pretty contrite in this freeze frame. I'm just going to go to the bench, sit on it obliviously, see what happens. I figure if I leave the camera on through the windshield, nothing stupid can happen. It's an old Hal Needham adage. So here I go, over to that bench there. Been in my car all this time. Maybe a supermodel will come behind me and give me oral sex. Who knows? It's crazy. Here I go. And so here's me putting an axe in Billy's head, and here's me jump-scaring his corpse. <sighs> I have to say, it seemed really implausible that Billy didn't look behind him for ten straight minutes, even though I was standing right there with an axe over his head making wolf noises. But I know now the reason he didn't look behind him was because the movie was over. Now everything's fine. Everything's peaceful. Man with an axe in his head. I love you, unborn son. I'm so glad you chose watching this over that Michael Winter. <laughs> All right, uh, Dingus, because you are the, uh, the sort of the horror neophyte, how did you feel about me making you watch Creep? I never know what, you, what Kelly's referring to when he makes Hal Needham jokes. No, oh, you need to see more Smoking the Bandit movies. That'll. It, how's this? Uh, how's that? A smoke? Smoking in a Bandit joke? I, don't, I, don't, I understand that Hal Needham's done that, but I never know what he's talking about. It's like I always think I missed some seventies horror, like Renaissance or something. I think in this case it was just like shooting stunt work through the windshield of a car. It was a comedy renaissance. Oh wait, is it is Hal Needham smoking a bandit or that stupid yeah. cannibal run stuff? Oh okay. No, he's okay. only both. car movies. He's, he's, both. he's both cannibal run and that because I but Ew. I never know what that means. All right, it's always a car joke. Uh, Dingus, I will I will say to you what someone I will paraphrase to you what someone said to Jack Nicholson at the end of Chinatown. Forget it, Dingus. It's Kelly Wand. That's a good point, actually. Um, there's, there, I, I actually appreciated getting to watch this, even though I, I, don't, I don't particularly care for it, um, uh, in, in the week that I had to watch Face of an Angel. Um, there's three things in particular that I really do appreciate about this movie. Okay, good. Um, I, I really appreciate the reveal, uh, because for me... When I'm watching a found footage movie, I'm constantly like, why is there an edit here? Why are we watching this? Who wants us to watch this? Uh -huh. I think at the end, what I would call this is a collected footage movie rather than a found footage movie. Because yep. it's, it's clear at the end what we've been watching, we've been watching with him, and I really like that a lot. Um, next, and, and by the way, that's great thing is because so many movies just are like, well, I don't uh, care. You know, they don't even bother with this whole idea of how the footage gets edited or why it even exists. So, yeah, very good thing. So I, I really like that. I like finding out at the end, like, oh, the pause. Why? Oh, duh. Okay, now I get it. I, I really love that moment. Um, uh, I, I also love that the, that the protagonist is the killer. 
I mean, I, I love finding that out. It's kind of wrapped up in what I just told you. And I also kind of grew to love that the, 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 the this director, I, I think his name's Patrick Rice, um, it, who is also in it, is a victim I, I'm very happy to see die. And every at every step along the way, I'm like, yeah, would, would somebody fucking kill this guy? He's, kind of, he's such a dud, though. I mean, I don't know why you'd want him to die. I, I really thought it, it was almost, um, I don't want to say brave, but if you're going to cast yourself in a movie... It's kind of odd that you are so uncharismatic and kind of. I think he's supposed to be. It's not just uncharismatic; is that he's constantly making stupid choices as a character. And I'm like, yeah, would somebody fucking kill him off already? He's he's stupid. He makes stupid choices constantly. And that whole like that whole HUD thing from Cloverfield, which you're constantly like, why are you why are you still shooting this scene? Why why do you keep doing that? Uh, so by the end, I'm like, yeah. Somebody put an axe in his head, and I will be totally happy. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, go ahead, Gilly. Well, I think that was all intentional. I think it's kind of just – it's like a comedy. It's riffing on how dumb found footage movies are. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I agree, but yeah. And, and what, what mainly works for me is I just I, – I love watching Mark Duplass, and if we're going to have a found footage movie, and most of it is just going to be Mark Duplass acting and specifically acting against type because he's such a charming yeah. guy. And it's really uh, – I'm not sure it works that he's actually that menacing or creepy. I mean I see what he's no, trying to do. Good. Well, I mean I like he, – he's not um, – for instance, funny. If, if, if this were written as a script uh, and you were to read the script, I mean the, the most unimaginative way to do this and what 99% of movies would do is they would just go cast Elijah Wood. You know? right. uh, and I love that they didn't and that instead we got Mark Duplass uh, playing against type. And yeah, I, I thought it was funny as well. Uh, I just loved watching him for most of this movie, and for, for that alone, yeah. And I, I will say, hence my pick, um, I, I love just how creepy it is having him in that, that, that peach fuzz mask. I love how creepy that thing is. You know that that was the original title of the movie? I do, yes, and yeah. who's going to see a movie called Peach Fuzz, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well Tom, uh, what I wanted to ask you uh-huh. is, uh, how do you deal with all these jump scares? Um, well, they're kind of jokes, too. I mean, yeah, I think, yeah uh, they're making fun of them. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. And I, they annoy me, but I think they're supposed to. I mean, it's part of yeah. trying to portray, hey, look at this creepy guy. And isn't he scary? And um, and it's that character's signature move. Right. Right. Uh, okay. which, so you which, kind of go over the hump as far as that's concerned. Yeah. And, and it's part of I mean, they really they a jump scare really is annoying and it's supposed to be annoying. It's supposed to right. make you think this guy is annoying and creepy and weird. Right. I mean, nobody does that. Who jump yeah, scares right. somebody? I mean, Dingus, that reminds me of uh, Dingus has, has turned me on to every now and then a good episode of this podcast that John, John Hodgman does called Judge John Hodgman, where uh, actually is that what it's called, Dingus? Yeah, you're right. Uh, where he just has normal people come on and he adjudicates something that uh, they're having an issue with. And I remember uh, this couple where the dude would jump scare his wife. Oh, that's right. Uh, and what, what an annoying jerk he was. Like, who does that? Uh, and, and so Creep made me think of that, that episode of the podcast where this real-life couple, this dickhead husband is every now and then jumping out to scare his wife and right. he thinks it's really funny. Um, right. He would wait in the house for hours on end to yeah. jump out at her, and she hated it. Wait, what? What kind of person does that to somebody? Yeah, so yeah, he'd wait for no, hours. I totally forgot that, Tom. And now, what kind that, of person that makes does a that? a really to good him? point. Yeah. yeah, who does that to his own freaking wife? Yeah, I could see some one of your dickhead buddies doing it to you, maybe. But who does that to his wife for Pete's sake? Yeah, who has that kind of time? 
Well, I did that when I was a, like a teenager to my stepmom once, and that was once. And then I was told by my dad. Then you felt dumb. No, no, I didn't feel dumb. It was it was super fun. But then my dad's like, "Yeah, you can't do that to her." Well, Dingus, you know who you had to tell not to do that to recently. Well, not recently, but your son used to try to do that. Like he would, yeah, tell, yeah. I would be in my office, and he would come into the office behind me and do a jump scare on me. And right, and I, I didn't tell. say anything to you. You were like, "Hey, dude, don't be a jerk. That's you know, don't do that to people." Yeah. But it's something that you you learn when you're eight years old, right? Some people right. don't remember. Yeah, but he was he was like eight years old. But this dude, and what I was wondering is, I watched this and it kept happening and kept happening and it kept annoying me because the first one's funny, uh, right? There, the first one's really funny because it's him too. It's a it's the reveal of Mark Duplass, and I didn't know that that's the movie I was seeing with him. And I I have so much affection for that guy. So when that's the jump scare, and then that's the guy, and then it's it's. I started doing this count of like how many jump scares versus how many hugs are we going to have. Um, I started like doing this hug slash jump scare count. And I started to get really annoyed with with him. But then I realized what you guys are talking about. But I wondered what Tom in particular would think of this because he he did a three by three about about these kind of scares, and we like went back and forth about what's the difference between a cat scare and a jump scare that kind of. And to be fair to uh, to creep. Most of them were pretty telegraphed. Like most of them, you see coming. Yeah. Right, um, and so. it's definitely part. But of you the still story. tense up waiting for it. Like, right. And right. when he's wandering up to that, you know, when they're when they're in the in the wilderness, and he's wandering up to that that log right. and that group of rocks, you know, he's going to jump out. You just have to you have to be tense until that happens. Right. Right. You're not though, because it's a comedy, and you already know you're watching something. No, you're not. If you're if you're lying in bed at night, or you're you're in a, a <laughs> room, because this? this is a VOD movie. Uh, if you're me and you're not used to horror movies, then you're tense until that person jumps out and yells, "Yeah!" Yeah. Even when it's Duplass, though, like you're <laughs> like, all right, it's obviously not a straight horror movie. But he goes out onto the the deck looking for him, and he still has the camera for some reason, and he turns one way and turns the other way, and then he goes back, and then Mark's suddenly there going, "Death is coming for you." I mean, it doesn't matter when it happens. If you're if you're crappy at horror movies, you're going to be scared. I'm an easy scare. Huh. So you'd be scared if you watched a scary movie like that would scare you. Are there jump scares in those? No, that's that's <laughs> completely different. This is a comedy of a different stripe. That's a goofball movie. This is a goofball movie. Ha ha! Kelly once saw a scary movie. And plus, that mask is super fucking scary. That mask is creepy. Yeah, I love that mask. It, and I love that he. And, and what I wonder is, did he put it there, or did he find it, and did he improvise? Were you scared during Cabin in the Woods? Yeah, I was plenty scared during Cabin in the Woods. That and that, that, How about that the, painting on the wall? Are you kidding? The credits in that movie are a jump scare in yeah. Cabin in the Woods, if you remember. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so there's my number three pick for a favorite mask. Uh, and we just wanted the excuse to talk about uh, Creep because we had seen it this week. Um, and so there you go. There's my number three pick. Dingus, you are next. What is your number three favorite? Oh, shoot. Speaking of you are next. What is your number three favorite? Uh, uh, spoiler. Ma- I know. I didn't even mean to do that. By the way, Dingus, what's your number three pick for a favorite mask? All right, my number three is from a movie called Take the Money and Run. Oh, Lord. I thought there weren't <laughs> masks in that. Uh, there's not any robbery masks, but the masks I love in that are there's this whole sequence where um, the parents are being interviewed, and 
in order to uh, they because they are ashamed of their son's criminal record, so they wear disguises, and the disguises they wear are these basically these nose groucho marx kind of masks, which is just a nose and a uh, a, a terrible mustache and uh and the mother at one point it, it, no the father at one point says if he was a good boy. Why are we wearing these? So I love that the, the, the two parents are sitting there wearing these Groucho masks, or Groucho Marx masks, while they're talking about their son. It's clear who they are. There's no way to disguise what their actual um, identity is. It's just this ridiculous gag, which I watched for last week's three by three, and I was just like struck by this is just a ridiculous gag and they never betray it. They never, other than saying, why are we wearing these silly things? They never take them off. Actors wearing them the whole time, and then when Kelly One brought up favorite masks, the first thing I thought of was, "Great, I can use take the money and run two weeks in a row." I wonder if right, so we have a, a listener named Chris Marquand who has done an amazing job, uh, sort of just keeping lists of our podcasts. Um, I wonder if uh, Chris could crunch the numbers and find out what movie has been appeared in a three by three in the most consecutive weeks. Uh, Only two for this. Well, and I bet, by the way. I bet it would be one of Dingus's movies. It was probably like Midnight Run or Rushmore. Probably, but this was just sort of a sort of a happy coincidence that it just so happened that Kelly chose masks, and I saw the masks in this movie. Well, interesting about the word Dingus, my three by three for next week is your favorite Woody Allen movies that begin with the letter T. That's my three by three next week. So it could go anyway. That's true. Dingus, I made fun of you for getting scared by Creep, but when I saw Take the Money and Run when I was a little kid. I saw it at the theater. My dad took me to it. It was a revival. I thought it was an actual documentary for, like, the entire movie. <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck, he's in prison for 800 years? Damn. I'm scared of America now. Before, before mockumentaries even existed, Kelly Wan saw one. I fell for it. I was, like, six, though. So Kelly Wan, what's your third favorite mask in a movie? Creep. You're not, you can't just pick my list because... No, I had it already. I thought I already said it. Sure Sorry. you did. But which mask? Oh, good point, yeah. He's, uh, my the, number- both the movies, t- Face of an Angel and Creep, they both are about beardy filmmakers being trolled repeatedly. Hi, I'm beardy filmmaker. <laughs> That's a good. That is a, quite the observation, Kelly Wand. I agree. Yeah. Uh, my number two favorite mask is those animal masks in your next. Um, just because of how creepy they look, how creepy they still look. Even though there's nothing, is there anything inherently creepy about them? I mean, yeah. is, it, is it strictly the context, or if you were to just show someone one of those masks, would they look creepy? I think yeah, the fact true. that they're unpainted, these they're these weird gray masks, but maybe it is contextual. I don't know. Are they I mean, anal- they're animal ones? They're animals. There's I didn't a, there's take this off the table because I think our minds all leapt, leapt there. Yeah, there, there's a there's like a wolf, there's a sheep, um, and a lion maybe. Uh, and yeah, but I can't that's... help but think of the movie when I when I look at them. But I, I love those masks. We own one that uh, someone who works for the the distributor of uh, the studio behind the movie gave us one of the masks. And whoa, whoa, what? Yeah, what I, I'm looking at it right now. It's the wolf mask. It's hanging on the wall right over yeah. there. We went you through a period where we would like hide the hide it around the house for the other person to find. That's true. Yep. Yep. We were. We're. Yeah. What kind of dickhead jump scares his buddy with a mask? I know, right, Angus? <laughs> I know. Right. Dingus, what is your number two favorite oh. mask in a movie? Right, my number two favorite mask in a movie is actually inspired by um, watching Creep this week. Uh, because I because I watched Creep this week, 
uh, thinking that we might possibly do it for the podcast. And so I was thinking about an over-under. Uh, and so the over movie I came to um, was based on uh, how weak I thought in Creep that whole I'm videotaping while you're asleep thing was. Uh, and so I was thinking about movies where I really like that more. And the movie I really like that more is a movie called VHS, in particular the the second honeymoon sequence directed by Ty West. And so I was watching that again just because I thought it would be my over. Uh, and what I came to was this great mask moment. And it's just, it's two really quick, quick shots. It's this clear mask that um that the uh i would say it uh that the killer is wearing you see her in the um ah. stir of the of the motel and then you see her uh at the end right before the kiss uh when the mask is covered with blood and it's just this weird creepy clear mask uh, and so it's from the movie VHS from Second Honeymoon. It's directed by Ty West, and it, and it has Joe Swanberg in it. And he's the he's the dude uh, in the hotel room. That's my favorite part of VHS, I think. Um, so yeah, it's that little mask. All right, Charlie Warren, what's your number two favorite mask? My number two favorite mask is the uh, mask in Halloween Three: Season of the Witch because they could spawn snakes after you put them on because there was a computer chip in them because an old man had Stonehenge. And it made me like hopeful for the future. Everything you said, aside from your hopefulness for the future, is indeed a description of what's in the movie, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. The computers can make snakes come out of your brain by putting on a mask. And they like really, really raised the bar. I thought. Who directed that? Uh, not John Carpenter, one of his proteges. Is it okay? I like the director, not Some John Carpenter. Actions. <laughs> it is a non-John Carpenter joint. Yeah. Uh, my number one favorite mask is uh, it's actually Darth Vader. What? From what movie, though, Tom? Star Wars, because it's the only one that counts. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go with Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, that's right, because you actually get to see the mask being put on. It's the good- Tommy Lee Wallace directed it. Carry when we've moved on. We're talking about Star Wars now. He directed Star Wars, too. Yeah, you wish. It's a little known. That's why it's got computers in it. Uh, all right. Dingus, what is your favorite mask in a movie? All right. So my favorite mask in a movie um, is not the mask I thought it would be from this movie. I, for, I actually kind of forgot this moment. So this is from the movie Silence of the Lambs. And what I was originally thinking of when I and I rewatched Silence of the Lambs was it's that weird, like, uh, restraint mask that they put on him so that he can't, like, chew on people and he's on that dolly. And I and I kind of love the way that look. I uh, of of recent uh, months I've kind of fallen for the television show Hannibal. Uh, so I love the way Mads Mikkelsen plays Hannibal, and I I really kind of like the way that whole story is structured in in a similar way to the that I liked and was surprised by the way that the Fargo television series found a way to breathe life in a television way into a movie I really loved. Um, but the actual mask I'm going to go with, um, and this is something that really sticks out for me from the book, but I don't remember being as good in the movie, but it is really good in the movie, 
is when Hannibal has been transferred to Georgia and then he fakes this whole, he makes this whole fake thing in order to escape and he's being taken away in an ambulance, but they think it's the policeman being taken away in an ambulance because he, cause he has peeled the face off of the actual Officer Pembry and put it on his own face. He's peeled Officer Pembry's face off and they're like, that's, that's Jim Pembry. Take care of him. Uh, and so when they're in the, ambulance uh and the the ambulance dude is like oh he's he's going through all of these things oh no what we're we gonna do and in the background you see hannibal sit up and he pulls the face mask off of his own face so it's the face of jim pembry on the face of hannibal Lecter. carry one dingus knows the name of jim pembry and seaman beaumont <laughs> true story pembry carry one what's your favorite mask in a movie I like the one in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original one, because it's made of human flesh, like the one Dingus just referenced, but you can, like, see under it, too, and it looks like it's actually worse, like his face is worse than the mask. Kelly, what's the name of the person from whom the face skin was peeled in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Uh, Ed Gein. No, Seaman Beaumont. (laughs) All right, Kelly, what do the listeners have for us? Oh, yeah. The listeners. Paul Weimer writes, Hey, guys, here I unmask my three favorite scenes with masks. And he has three. Number three, in Green Lantern, Carol taunts Hal, Ryan Reynolds, that she can see through his mask disguise and knows he's the Green Lantern. What an idiot. (laughs) Because she's slept with him and isn't stupidly fooled by something covering half his face. Plus his dick's green, I'm thinking. It's a nice counterpoint to the idea that people are always fooled by things like Superman's glasses and Green Lantern's getup. He's a secret? That's his secret identity? That's my comment. Uh, in Atlantis, The Lost Empire. What? This isn't a movie. It's Atlantis? A sci-fi. Atlantis, The Lost Empire? Atlantis Morissette, the mysterious I, fighter. Are you saying with it's the, not a movie, that it's a documentary? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I see. Well, we'll give Paul, you know, Paul seems like the kind of guy who enjoys documentaries, so we'll give him a yes. break. I agree. And in Atlantis, the lost empire, the mysterious fighter with the long African-like mask dogging the adventurers lifts it for the first time when she meets Milo alone. Here's where we could use which actors. Like, he gives us Ryan Reynolds, the one we already know, but then it's like, you know, Milo from Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Revealing herself as the female lead, Princess Kida. It's a Kelly Wand meet cute. I'm only familiar with Patrick Duffy's Atlantis work. Personally. Number one, in V for Vendetta, very much. See, so did a B word. Very much a movie about masks of many forms. The scene at the end, as thousands of Londoners wearing Guy Fox masks. I hated that fucking ending. Coming to storm and destroy Parliament without a weapon amongst them is a powerful climax to the movie. See, that comic was about armed revolt, and then that ending is about peaceful revolt. Hmm. Wait, Arthur Jovan and Jelly had a, an error. Messed up. Okay. Arthur Jovan and Jelly. Number three, Killing Them Softly. Ah, I kind of have affection for that movie. Well, that scene, yeah. It's an oh, awesome yeah. scene. Holy cats, it's a great one. 
pair of low IQ criminals hold up a poker game while wearing nylons over their faces. They look like fools, especially since they're also wearing kitchen gloves and brandishing a shotgun that's sawed off to a ridiculous degree. Number two, Mission Impossible 2. Ethan Hunt uses two masks to switch places with a henchman, prompting his boss to kill his friends since he thinks it's Hunt. Uh, I kind of like that one. That's where I thought the masks were funny. I like the nylon one because it reminds me of uh, H.R. McDonough in uh, Raising Arizona. I like that. I forgot about the killing me softly. Pantyhose as a mask always seems to undercut. I don't know. Boy, you got a panty on your head. Isn't it son? You got a panty on your head? Oh, maybe it is. Yeah. Jeez, Dennis, I would expect you to get that right of all people. I'm very uh-huh. sorry. You know Raising Arizona. Oh, you outed me. Oh, you trolled me. Nicely done, Dingus. Wait, Raising Arizona's a shame to be hidden? I would just think of all people. So my my assertion about Raising Arizona is you can find out a lot about somebody by asking them their favorite Coen Brothers movie. And they say. most people will pick Raising Arizona. That's like the standard non-thinking man's choice because they're far deeper Coen Brothers movies. It means it's the only one they've seen. I thought yeah. your condition was that the, the easy choice was Miller's Crossing. No, Miller's Crossing. That's I don't pick. No, yeah, Miller's Crossing is more thinking. But if you ask the average, like you know, like just like the the undiscriminating moviegoer, hey, what's your favorite Coen Brothers movie? They're probably going to say Raising Arizona. They probably don't know Fargo is a Coen Brothers movie. Maybe. So Dingus just outed me as knowing the dialogue from. I mean, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is. Boy, you got a panty on your head. But I always thought it was Son. You got a panty on your head. I and, think you're right. Okay. You're definitely the bigger uh, Raising Arizona fan. Damn, I've just, I've just, yeah, I've just indicted myself as a non-discriminating moviegoer. Raps. Mine's the Lady Killers. Oh, jeez, yeah. And then no. there's that weird, that's a weird category. Anybody who picks Lady Killers. Yeah, at least you didn't pick Cruel, or not in a Cruel Intentions. Uh, Intolerable Cruelty. That's the one I meant. Cruel Intentions. I kind of like that one. Yeah. It's funnier than, I don't know. All right, Number so Arthur, one. do you have it? Yeah, go ahead. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Wait a minute. Ford. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. That was one of my runners-up. Yeah. Masks? Is that just where they're wearing the kerchiefs on their? No, they they have they have full-blown masks on that that train robbery. Remember, they, they can't even sometimes. see out of them again. They can't even see out of them, and like somebody gets killed because they can't. Right? Are they like bags or yeah? Go. What does Arthur say? Have Arthur talk us through this, Kelly Wand. I prefer Jesse James's earlier, funnier ones. Uh. When they rob the train at Blue Cut, the thieves sport traditional Old West criminal masks, bandanas covering their noses and mouths. These look amazing in the forest as the train's light illuminates the men, and the masks had an element of menace to the scene. Bob is later shown to have saved his mask in his box of Jesse James memorabilia. Because I just think of that as a kerchief and not necessarily a mask, but but you know, fair pick. Yeah. Any any pick, anytime you want to get assassination of Jesse James in a three by three, I'm all for it. Well, Darth Vader, that's a hat. It's got a mask in front of it, though. Like, it's got the hat component, but what do you, what's the part over his face? That's not a hat. It's his helmet. It's, it's, not his a, helmet. it's not a hat. When you wear, when Red fought, when Luke puts on his, uh, his hat. It's a blast shield. It's a blast well, shield. It was what Leia's wearing in Return of the Jedi. Is that a mask? Yes, Master Knobs. Yoto, Yoto, Yoto. Is that a mask? Mask days, it will. <laughs> At the beginning, when she goes in and oh, in disguise. Goes, oh, right. I have oh, a thermal detonator, Yoto, Yoto, which means thermal detonator. That's a mask, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Just knows what the word is for. 
Everyone, what, you know, what, we all know thermal detonators. Anybody who's played a Star Wars video game knows a thermal detonator, please. Yoto Yoto. R2 Daytoa. Everybody says that. <clears throat> Hatties. Hatties has a lot of vowels. Hi, oh, guys. TJ Keller picked two movies. I like it when the listeners just go, fuck you, three roll, and they just, like, pick up. Well, I think we should, yeah. I mean, you never have to send in three. You can just send in one if you want. I know, but they usually do send in three, and then it's always like... And Paul did that, too. Didn't Paul just pick two? I mean, good for him. I like that. No, he picked three. Oh, good for him for picking three. Good for him. Yeah, why can't you just pick three for me? TJ Keller picked number two from 1998, Man of the Iron Mask, Leo (laughs) DiCaprio. (laughs) If it has Mask in the title, I should have... And just found a way to take Star Wars out. If their failed attempt to put Philippe on the throne, Dingus Tom went Star Wars on this. That's so weird to me. Yeah, he did. That's a great mask, though. You can't dispute it. It's got those yeah, triangle and black eyes, and yeah. You know. I've never seen you go to Star Wars though by choice. Like you had, a, like you admitted, masks were such an illustrious topic, and you still went. Nope, theater. It's a great mask. I mean, it's, it's, the, stuff, it's the stuff of our childhood. It's certainly one that creeped me out first. And I like that, uh, at least in the first movie, they don't show us what's behind it. You know, George Lucas made a whole movie, and he's like, hey, you don't get to see why this guy's wearing a mask. We don't even really know what it does. Like, at that like, point, we go, if, if he takes the mask off, it's the exact same shape, but his face. Mm, we know better than that from later movies, though. His face is his warrant. <laughs> Darth Vader. Man of the Iron Mask. After their failed attempt to put Philippe on the throne. Is it Philippe or Felipe? Probably Philip. Philippe. Philip. Philip. With another P. What is this? He's from? Man of the Iron Mask. Oh, okay. okay. Spanish king or something? France? I don't know. What's going on with <laughs> The days of France. <laughs> Spain, France. Fuck it. He's sentenced to have the mask put back on. I love the fear and despair that comes across in the scene when they clamp the titular iron mask back onto his face. What? Why does he have to wear a mask? Because it's titular. You're titular. Hmm. I wish TJ had explained why what was going on in this movie. I haven't seen he it. He just loves the fear and despair. I always get confused like where that in Count of Monte Cristo, because that's also about someone who's like in prison. So it's like the prison bars are a mask. Kind of. That second thing, that last thing is a sandwich. <laughs> Number one from 2005, V for Vendetta. Any scene in this movie would do, but I want to highlight the kiss. It is fairly common when there is a kiss in the movie to have the entire head of both actors in the shot. That's why we, yeah, I never thought of that. That's true. It's a good point. It does take two. But in this case, the camera zooms in on Evie's mouth. Evie? What's her fucking name? Portman. Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman? Yeah. Natalie Evie. While it's not a full scene, it's probably the shot that sticks with me the most. Keep up the good work. Period. And that's it. <laughs> All right. Runners up, gentlemen. All right. I have a couple of runners up. Um, I really like, and well, I'm not a big fan of this movie, um, I do kind of appreciate the director's cut of it, and that's Kingdom of Heaven. And Kingdom of Heaven has this great dynamic where uh, uh, Edward Norton plays the Leper King, Baldwin the Fourth. Saladin? Yeah. 
And he's just in this weird mask the whole time, and his body's kind of all wrapped up. But I like that that impassive, I don't know if it's silver or whatever it is, but I really like that Kingdom of Heaven mask. And on on sort of the same level of masks, I I love the Immortals masks in 300. Um, they're just so weird. Uh, m- mainly I like them. I'm not a big fan of the movie 300, but I, I love that. The, that convention of the of the immortals because it reminds me of something I've brought up here before and, and this is this series of books called uh, Tom's Covenant the Unbeliever um, and uh, and the 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 immortals remind me of the blood guard uh, which are the har- harkai I don't know exactly how you say it but those those masks always when I saw the 300 I thought oh the immortals are supposed to be that that sort of stand in for the blood guard that was is one of my favorite things from fiction uh there's a decent horror movie called home sweet home uh which is your standard you know a young couple is getting stalked by a, a home invader kind of thing um one of the things i really like about this movie is the masks that the killer wears uh which is kind of a reveal but it's this weird uh wooden painted thing with the eyes painted open uh, that looks looks wonderfully creepy. It's a good horror movie one. Uh, the Strangers are kind of famous. I don't care for that movie, but those are famous masks, I guess. Nobody brought up Point Break. I like that. Yeah, that's uh, like. Did anybody dress up as presidents for a bank robbery before that? That's kind of hilarious. I guess that presidents came up after that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but yeah, the Point Break bit is that Point Break bit is classic. Yeah. Kelly Wan, is it a mask in uh, Under the Skin? Yeah. Okay. And in House of Wax. Um, How about Roger Rabbit? How about the end of Roger Roger Rabbit when he said, when I talked, when I I, I talked just like this, and then he like pulls off his face. Yeah, that's a mask. Is that a mask or is that his face? I don't know. I was thinking about Roger Rabbit and I, uh, what's his name? Christopher um, Plummer? No, is it Chris Plummer? Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd, thank you, duh. Uh, when he says, when I when I killed your brother or whatever, I oh yeah 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 like this, and then like he pulls off his face. Yeah. So does that count as a mask? That's good. Um, I would accept that. Certainly, uh, Michael Myers is famous. Uh, I mentioned this on the podcast previously. I didn't remember this, but Jason Voorhees didn't have the hockey mask in the first two movies. That didn't come along until the third movie, which is weird to me. Oh crap! I forgot that. I wanted to mess around with Goon and see if there was a like something going on in Goon with hockey masks. But Is there? Remember? Yeah, because sometimes hockey goalies like uh, elaborately like have elaborate hockey masks. Like I don't know, it's sort of a, I don't know, almost a tribal thing. And I wonder if there was something like that going on in Goon, but I couldn't remember. Uh, Jason Voorhees' mask was based on. I think this is true. Uh, the Detroit Red Wings. Huh. So all you people. In Wait, Detroit. so he, that's where Crystal Lake is? Uh, no, so the 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 uh, the, He's <laughs> the the backstory, and this is just from Wikipedia. I don't know how how much truth there is to it, but the backstory is uh, they just needed to have a mask on him, and someone who was doing the production design happened to have a his hockey gear with him, and he had a Detroit Red Wings hockey mask. So in the early stages of production, that's just what was available. And when they then constructed one for the makeup, they used some of the same markings from it uh, for Jason's mask, and it was from a Detroit Red Wings mask. I, I don't even, to be perfectly honest, 
I couldn't tell you what the Detroit Red Wings are. I don't know the first thing about them. <laughs> I assume I'm assuming they're a hockey team. Yeah, they throw octopi on the ice. Did you know that? I don't know whether or not to believe you. I'm leaning towards not believing you. Wait, so for the Shatner mask in Halloween, was that like the only one they had around that day? I do not know the backstory behind that. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure I believe that that, like, I've heard that, but that doesn't look anything to me like William Shatner. I I don't know why that that myth, even if it's true, has taken off. Because does that look like William Shatner to you? It looks like him now. That's a good point, yes. Exactly. (laughs) Right, right. After he gets his eyes shot out in Halloween 2, it looks more like All right, are the other runners up? Anyone? Uh, did those Immortals wear a mask in the Immortals when they were in that, like, little cage at the beginning? Remember those guys? They have, like, bolts in their mouths. I think we'll have to field that question. He's the Immortals apologist on this podcast. I don't know what movie is The Immortals, but if you want to ask questions about Immortals, I can probably answer them. Do you know there's a new Tarzan movie out this, this uh, summer? What? This? Yeah. What? What, what the? Uh, this what? summer? Yeah, it's with Ryan Reynolds, and it's called, I want to say something like, not Failsafe. I'm confusing it with the movie Dingus always talks about. Uh, selfless. Isn't there? Isn't Selfless a Tarzan movie with Ryan Reynolds? It opens I, in two weeks. I, if, oh, yeah, but you just made me very happy. Yeah. Well, the I problem is Tarzan. No, no. Tarzan <laughs> saying the guy who did the cell and Immortals and yeah, that makes uh, more sense. And the fall, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the problem is it probably won't open in Germany until 2016 or something. Usually, things don't. I'm a huge fan of Ryan Reynolds and and I love Tarzan. What the yeah. what what the what? Well, we'll we'll hopefully be seeing it in a couple weeks. Yeah. He's he only has filmed it. On commercial shoots within a coffin. <laughs> no telling, yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, so you guys ready for next week's 3x3? Three three? Yeah. I don't know about this one. Uh, so this could either be, you can get as broad or narrow as you want. I'm thinking of a couple of very specific movies. I think a lot of them are bad, but you can do with this as you will. What I want from you, movies that wouldn't happen unless someone does something really stupid. So does that kind of make sense? This sounds like the failure one a little bit. This is the yeah. opposite of that. This is not notable failures. This is a movie that would not happen, that the, the, the actual movie is contingent on somebody doing something really, really stupid. So if somebody was just moderately bright, just had a modicum of common sense, the movie wouldn't happen. This is a movie that only happened because somebody did something really stupid. So, all right. Put, all right. That, in your, put that in your pipe and smoke. Wait, so... Does Star Wars count because making the Death Star was stupid? Take Kelly Wan, see, see where you can go with this. You can go anywhere you want, and I look forward to seeing what three things you come up with. Yeah. Uh, so if you'd like to participate, send your picks in to 3 by 3 at quarter to 3com the number 3, the letter X, the number 3, at, and then spell out quarter to 3com uh, Next week, um, so... We'll probably maybe talk a little bit about Terminator Genesis, but we might have to delay that until next week because it doesn't start in Germany where Kelly is. For uh, There's a delay there. So what we're going to do next week is uh, it's a video-on-demand movie that I have seen um, that I won't say anything about. But uh, look for a movie called Closer to God. It uh, is available video-on-demand on July 3rd, uh, and we will be talking about it on next week's podcast. Uh, and then we'll do our three by three of movies that only happen because somebody did something really, really stupid. So join us for that. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Christian 
Molewski. It's Christian Morosky. That's exactly what I said. You're just repeating me. And we had Kelly Warren. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. So you get it because cocaine? I don't know if that was clear. Oh, I didn't know. See, get it? I thought get it, it was a Mad Men reference. Mad Men. I guess still look now. Was that a mask? That... It was not. It was a disfigured face. Yeah. Is that this account? No, of course not. And under the skin, we're talking about the dude. (laughs) Response. Hey, Kelly, have you ever done anything you were really ashamed of? Today?